0: we've been in this series, right, called End Times. And last week, we, we took, two weeks ago, rather, we took a look at Second Thessalonians chapter 4, and we, we saw what the return of Christ looks like. And we saw the resurrection of the dead. We saw this godly reunion with Christians in heaven. Next week, what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to do this overview of the book of Revelation, and and I'm going to pick snapshots out of this book that I believe are going to help you with a biblical understanding of what is set to occur during the end times. But today, I want to talk about something important, something very unique to you. I want to talk about your end times. Because whether or not Jesus returns in your lifetime, the end of your life— will come on earth, and you will have to face one of two judgments. So I want to talk about those two judgments today, and I want to answer this question, what will eternity be like? So the foundation of our study, we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 22, and we're going to go in verse 12 and 13, and you're actually going to help me out. This is Jesus speaking, Revelation 22, verse 12 and 13. It says what? It says, look I am come on y'all need to help me out oh y'all messed up look I am my reward is what and I will give to each person according to what they have done look at the next verse verse 13 Jesus says this I am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end now you say wow Powerful. These are some of the names of God that God is talking about. Well, what is He saying? He said everything begins and ends in Me. And if if you ever read this in Scripture, right, one of the things that you see in Scripture, it, it'll say, "Holy, holy, holy, thrice holy." Three times, holy. It is meant to like, boom, in your face. It's like you're showing up. You ever been to a 3D movie before and that thing just jumps out at you, pops out at you? That's what it's meant to do here. And this is the same thing. It's saying the same thing three times over. As a matter of fact, you'll be interested to know this, right? The New Testament, in fact, is written in Greek, the original language of the New Testament is Greek. And you say, well, well, I didn't know that. Aren't we talking about the Middle East here? How is it written in Greek? Well, there was a little man by the name of Alexander the Great. And he comes in and he conquers the entire known world at that time. And he subjugates it and he begins to influence the culture with Greek thought. If, you, if you're a history buff, you'll know this as Hellenistic culture. So then the Romans come in after Alexander comes. The Romans come in, and the Romans really change governments. They change administrations. They sent their legions out, but they do not change what's called the lingua franca, the common language spoken by the people at that time, which was Greek throughout the entire Roman Empire. So it's very likely that Jesus, in fact, I know that we look at the text and we say, there are these poor fishermen. No, I want you to understand they're businessmen, actually. They're not just poor fishermen. They had a business that involved fishing, right? This was a family business likely passed down from generations to them. So they were businessmen, one. Two, you need to understand we look at people all throughout the world, and because they do not have the modern education and university system that we have in America, we look down upon them. The reality is, is that Hebrew education from the moment of, of that child being old enough to learn and to be taught was recitation and recited and being sat under the feet of a rabbi for many, many years. So these people were not dumb people. They were very learned individuals. And so he says this, he he uses that term, Jesus uses that term, I am the alpha and the omega. Why? Alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's saying I'm the beginning and the end over and over and over again. He wants to get his point very clear. Now I want to share this. If you're new to Christianity, let me be clear with this. We are not qualified for heaven by how good we are. The truth is we are all sinners made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. We're made right with God by grace through faith because we are forgiven by Jesus. But for those of you who are Christians, I want you to understand this. It's very important to know that although your works, the things that you do on this earth, do not qualify you for heaven, that the way you live does determine how you will be rewarded in heaven. Let me give you this quick example, right? A preacher and a taxi cab driver, they go to heaven. St. Peter's waiting for them at the pearly gates. He says, welcome, pastor. Welcome, taxi cab driver. We've been expecting you. And St. Peter says to the pastor, he says, over here, we have this lovely three-bedroom, two-bathroom house with a nice fence-in backyard all prepared for you. And to the taxi cab driver, he says, on this side, we have a seven-bedroom mansion with a swimming pool overlooking the seventh hole at the Heavenly Greens golf course just for you. So pastor goes to St. Peter. He goes, no, 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 no. no, Wait a minute. I'm glad to be here and everything. But you know, I did serve Jesus on the earth. I was a pastor. I actually had to deal with your people. Not an easy thing to do. And St. Peter said, well, yes, pastor, we do know that you need to know that we did judge you based on the results that you achieved while you were on the earth. And pastor, whenever you preached, people slept. And whenever the taxi cab driver drove, people prayed. (laughs) Welcome to heaven. Here's your reward. (laughs) Now that isn't exactly how it's going to happen. You need to know that that's just a joke. It's likely St. Peter won't be there welcoming you, but the way that you live on earth will determine how you are rewarded in heaven. So the question becomes, what would judgment look like for us. Now, when I was a kid, this was really, really scary for me. When I was a kid, they they, they really kind of ingrained this in my head that there was going to be this big screen in heaven and God was going to show you an entire movie of your life and then he would judge you. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like, just get to the point, God, please. Either heaven or hell, don't make me watch the movie. I'm going to be utterly embarrassed and traumatized by reliving all those terrible moments. So the question is, what will judgment be like? If, if you're, if you're taking notes, right, there's two different kinds of judgments. The first step is this, the judgment seat of Christ. So what is that and when will it take place? Well, let's start, when will it take place? A lot of Bible scholars believe that it'll take place right after the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the Christian dead. The reason they believe this is according to this story told in Luke chapter 14, verse 14. In this teaching, he says this. He's using this parable to make a broader point. He says, if you're throwing a dinner party, don't just invite your family and your friends and rich people. Because they can pay you back by inviting you to their parties. But Jesus said, instead, invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, because they cannot pay you back. But I will repay you or reward you. Luke 14, 14. There's a continuation of the same story. He says, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, a lot of people believe that the judgment seat of Christ will take place after the resurrection of the righteous. Who are the righteous? We spoke about that last week. We spoke at the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes again, the dead in Christ will be raised up again. Where do we read from this? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 here's what it says. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Most scholars believe, and I agree, that the judgment seat of Christ is a judgment specifically for Christians only. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you're not judged whether or not you'll go to heaven or hell because you've already been saved, but this judgment will be one rewarding you for the works that you've done while you're here on this earth. And here's why people believe this. Why do people, this is why it's so important, man, that we understand the context of scripture. The word that is actually, the Greek word that is translated judgment seat is the word bima. That is spelled b-e-m-a. And the bima is not the seat, where a judge would deliver a verdict of guilty or innocent but instead it was the throne where the judge would sit on to issue awards after the Grecian games what are the Grecian games think about the olympics the precursor to the olympics right if the runners would win the race, the judge would sit down at the Bima seat and say, Congratulations, here's the crown, here's the reef for first place, here's the reef for second place. And this was where the judge would issue rewards for those who had won the race. So now, how are you rewarded? Well, we're entirely not sure, but my theory is here that there will be dozens, if not hundreds of thousands, of crowns or different types of rewards that the Lord will issue. Well, how do we know that? Well, we know according to scripture that there are at least five designations or five crowns that the scripture speaks about that will be given on this day of reward. The first one is this. Scripture says this. We will be given the incorruptible crown for those who have run a faithful race, who are devoted to Christ and righteous living. Those who are saved, the incorruptible crown. Then the scriptures speak about the crown of right, of rejoicing. That's for those who share their faith in Jesus. If you've invited a friend to church, if you're a a light in the office or in the salon or in the school and you're witnessing to other people, there's a crown for those who share their faith in Jesus. There's also a crown of righteousness. We spoke about this two weeks ago. For those who long, who desire the return of Jesus. Remember, we spoke about that concept, Maranatha. He's coming soon. We're really, really excited about his coming. If you look forward to re- the return of Jesus, there's the crown of righteousness. There's also the crown of glory. Spiritual, scripture, the specific context is for those who have shepherded and led well. There is the crown of glory. And then finally, there's the crown of life. And it says this, the context of where it's written here in Scripture. It says if you've suffered on Christ's behalf, if you've been martyred or if you've endured great hardships for Christ, there will be a crown given to those who have suffered for the glory of Christ. Now, if you think that you're going to go to heaven and you're going to say, look, check out my crown. I got five, you got one, right? There will be none of that in heaven. You won't do any of that, right? Revelation chapter 4, it speaks of crowns. It says 24 elders gathered around the throne of God, receive their crown. And you know what they do with their crown? They kneel down before Jesus. They take their crowns off. They lay it at the feet of Jesus. Because if you can only imagine for a second, the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, the one who is crowned with thorns, placing a crown on your head, It would be the most humbling moment of your entire existence when you realize, I don't deserve anything. And he deserves everything. And so I take my crown off. I lay it at the feet of the one who is due all worship and glory and honor and praise. I want to just take a step back for a second. And what I want to do is I want to, you know, give you, I think, a suggested timeline according to kind of what the Bible says. Now, now listen to this. Suggested. Y'all ready? I am not going to tell you this is a hundred percent accurate. And if you don't, there's well-meaning Christians that believe all different kinds of things as it relates to this specific timeline. But, um, and if anybody ever tells you this is exactly how it's going to go down, you need to look at them and say, "Mm "Mm-hmm, sure, because nobody knows. So what I'm doing is I'm giving you best educated scholarly guests. So here's the suggested timeline. We said two weeks ago, we said the return of Christ is really what will set everything off. At the return of Christ, the dead in Christ would rise up. The Christian church would be raptured, and some people believe that this will take place later, but we believe that this will take place in what we're calling pre-tribulation. Pre-tribulation, that is before the tribulation, okay? believers will be rewarded early on in this process, then the scriptures teach will come a seven-year tribulation, three and a half years, which will be of prosperity and goodness enough to draw people in to all the things that are happening globally, and then three and a half years where there'll be this individual who rises up to take control over all things and will be all things anti-God. And so scripture calls him and refers to him as the Antichrist. He will rise during this time. Scripture teaches that there will be a battle of Armageddon. Evil versus righteousness where God wins and throws Satan into the bottomless pit. Where he will be bound for a thousand years yet released a short time after that until God does away with him forever. During that thousand year time Christ returns. In what is known as the millennial reign of the Messiah. The first time that he came back, he came back for his church. The second time he comes back with his church to rule and reign. Then comes what we will refer to as the resurrection of the dead. Last week we looked at two resurrections. The first one is for those who have died in Christ that will happen at the rapture initially. The second one is for non-Christians. This is known as the resurrection of the dead. They will be judged at what the scriptures refer to as the judgment of the great white throne. Now people ask this, once all of this is done and history wraps up, it says that a new heaven and a new earth is established. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But people ask this question, what's heaven going to be like? Am I going to be bored in heaven? What am I going to do after these massive wars that happen? these battles, evils done away with? Am I just going to dwell with God forever? Am I going to get bored? Is there going to be a bunch of naked babies with harps and wings floating around all over the place? Like, how is this going to look like? What's, what is this going to be like for all eternity? Well, John has a vision, the Apostle John, in Revelation chapter 21 and verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to give you three specific descriptions of what eternity or heaven is going to be like. The first thing is that God will establish a new heavens and a new earth. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Pause for a second. What does this mean? How will God do this? How will God accomplish this? Well, actually, this is not, you know, people, people like to, pe- some scholars that like, that believe in, um, what is called historical critical method of interpreting scripture will look at this and will say, well John developed his own theology apart from the theology of the rest of the apostles. That's not true because we see this same theology of a new heaven and a new earth in Peter. Peter writes in First and Second Peter and in that he speaks about the earth being purified with flames and being completely renewed. What is this new heaven and a new earth? Is it God recreating things or creating just like he did in Genesis 1? Something out of nothing. No, this creation will not be that way. Peter tells us that the creation, that this type of creation will be a renewal. God will renew the entirety of the earth. He will purify. it. He will make it righteous. He will make it holy, just like he intended in the beginning. So there will be a new heavens and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away, right? So this is what happens. God establishes this new heavens and this new earth. The difference here, we're not going to be under the curse of sin. It will be just like the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day before the Lord. It will be paradise uninterrupted, fellowship with God forever. Before the serpent ruined everything and the curse fell upon mankind. So whatever you love, just think about it for a second. Your favorite moment on earth. Your favorite, favorite moment on earth. It's going to be so much better than that so much better than even your best moment on earth. Scripture says this, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. So God establishes this new heaven and this new earth where sin cannot corrupt anymore. The second thing is this, you will never suffer again. Revelation 21 verse 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He is in God. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. Verse 5 says this. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. What does it mean that the old order of things had passed away? What does this mean in this new heaven and this new earth? It means no more suffering. If your body is racked with pain right now, no more. If you have carpal tunnel syndrome, no more. If you've got arthritis, no more. No more cancer, no more sickness, no more diabetes, no more headaches, no more AIDS, no more famine, no more starvation, no more wars, no more divorce, no more loneliness, no more agony, no more pain. It is done away with by God Forever. Forever. The world has no curse upon it. You can now walk with God. He will do away with all pain. So He establishes a new heaven and a new earth. And He establishes that mankind will never suffer again. Number three is this Revelation 21:3. We will live with God forever. This is the way that it's described in Scripture. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's what? Dwelling place. Is with what? Is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the final declaration from the throne. It's as if God is saying, finally, it's done. It's restored. It's back the way I created it. It's the way I wanted it. My children are with me, and I am with them. And the reason that some of you aren't cheering or clapping right now, because this is one of the most exciting things in all of history, is that we cannot simply comprehend the glory of this promise. The reality is this. We cannot handle God in his purest form. Scripture says that no one can look upon God in his purest essence and live. Our mortal bodies can't even handle the pure presence of God. But on that day when we're raised to life, when we're in our immortal bodies, clothed in all righteousness, we can walk with God and fellowship with him. Just like in Eden, God is saying, hey, that is the way I wanted it all along. And I'm finally going to have that with you. Nothing to interrupt our time together. It's going to be me and you. Well, why does God do this? Well, he doesn't just love us. Love is who he is. He created us as the object of his love. You ever heard the term apple of his eye? We are the apple of the eye of God. He is satisfied. He is fulfilled now. God's plan is complete. His children are with him. Y'all ever have a, for those of you who are perhaps at a different stage of parenting, right? You're a little bit older, right? You've you've had children before, right? And, uh, you know, you love and you raise your children. You love them so deeply and then they go out into the world. And they get educated and, you know, you're here in New Jersey and they've moved to California and they've moved to Minnesota and moved to Colorado and moved all over the place, all over the world. And those family meals, those times together that you used to have, They're not quite there anymore. And so sometimes holidays become this moment of reliving your childhood. It's why holidays become so special sometimes. See, that person flies in from Minnesota. They come in from Colorado. They come in from Florida. And everybody's kind of gathered together. And as an older parent, your heart is filled with such joy. And there's memories of these good times that you had together. That same impact, that same love that you have, that the desire to see that happen in your home. God is desiring that for us. He's saying, hey, my children are finally with me again. No more pain. They dwell in paradise. This is the way I've wanted it. So, How does that start? How does this all begin? How do we get there? Let's start when the one who was crowned with thorns welcomes you with a crown of righteousness into the eternity that he has prepared for you. And God is that good for those of you who are Christians. You have that much to look forward to in Christ. Now, here's the problem, though. There's this little problem. Most people today believe that heaven is the default destination. Right? I just want to share with you, it's not. Hell is actually the default destination. And and here's how it goes today. Here's kind of how we rationalize it. Oh, well, Uncle Joe, he died, and Uncle Joe wasn't much of a church goer. He, he wasn't so religious. He didn't have a relationship with Christ, but Uncle Joe wasn't perfect, but he was a good boy, and except for that one time, but we're not even going to talk about that one time, and, you know, he tried really hard. He did some things for some some people, and he tried to be really good, and we're thankful that Uncle Joe is in a better place now. And we tell ourselves that to make us feel better anytime someone we love departs from this earth. We're so thankful that they're in a better place because we believe in our society that heaven is the default destination. And most people believe this. They say, well, hey, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I'm doing the best I can, and we're all going to get to heaven at the end, aren't we? Right. Well, Jesus actually said something very sobering about this concept, he, and he spoke to this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And, and here's what Jesus says. He says, "Enter." through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it and he says this in verse 14 but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it what does that mean it means you ever heard that that there was this song right back in the day highway to hell you heard that song before Right? No, you can't admit to that. You're in church. (laughs) This is a song, Highway to Hell. In other words, there's this long, long path. This verse speaks to the traffic, anticipated traffic patterns that are expected. It's saying there's a lot of people that are destined for destruction because of how they are living their lives apart from God. This is long. There's a lot of people headed to hell. He says, narrow, very short, small as the gate. Well, what is that? What is small? I remember when I went to Israel we had the opportunity to go down to what is called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's this underground tunnel that is literally filled with water up until this day and was created and excavated in and around of the time of King Hezekiah in scripture. And so if you go down into this tunnel area, it kind of starts off a little bit wide and then eventually you start coming down and, down and down and down and down and down and down. And you're kind of hunched back and the walls are kind of closing in on you. It's this claustrophobic space. It's this small space. It's saying, hey, heaven is going to be like that. There's going to be very few people that enter in through the doors of heaven. But it's not going to be because God did not want the world to be with him, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. God extended this huge invitation to the world. The world has rejected that invitation. And so God is not saying this is what is destined to happen because I have orchestrated and ordered that this many people go to hell. That's not the idea. God destined and desired people to go to heaven. People have rejected God and have chosen hell as their default destination, There's a lot of people that are traveling on this broad path where their eternal destination is leading towards hell. And so we talked about the first judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, where Christians go to get rewarded for the works that they've done on this earth. And how we live in life determines how we're rewarded in heaven. But the second judgment, if you're taking notes, is this. It is known as the judgment of the great white throne. This is not a judgment for Christians. And here's how it's described in scripture in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. He said this. He said, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. What is that word? Some of you will look at this and say great and small. Does that mean there's little kids that are going to stand before the Lord so that God can destine them to an eternity in hell? No, that's not what this word means. Great and small. What this word means is saying those who we perceive as significant and those who we perceive as insignificant. That means that somewhere across the generation, there was going to be this poverty-filled person that had the opportunity to love and serve and know Jesus and the gospel was presented to them and they chose differently. And there will also be a king who said that they governed of all of Christendom and murdered and killed and had no relationship with Christ who will also stand. There will be people that you have known in history and read about in your history books and there will be people you even know nothing about. Great and small. Significant and insignificant in, in world history. Here's the important part, verse 15. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. What is it saying? It's saying if anyone's sins were not covered by Christ, if anyone had not called on the grace of God, if anyone was judged by what they had done alone instead of by the perfect work of Christ, if their name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. This is that default destination that I told you about. Now let's pause here because I know a lot of you guys are thinking this, right? Because it's, it's kind of what hung me up for a while. You don't like this part of the story. This is not fair. Why is God sending people to hell? That is totally not fair. But let's talk about what's really not fair because those actions on behalf of God are just and fair. How many of you have ever known somebody who has hurt someone else so severely and have never been held accountable for their actions? What did you say when you walked out of that space? after time had gone by you'd look at that situation you say that's not fair they should have to pay for what they've done have you ever known somebody who'd done some sort of horrible injustice to someone else and they got away with it there's no consequences well that happens you look on and you say that's not fair you should have to pay for what you've done and that's exactly what happens at the judgment of the great white throne god takes all the judgment all of the sin throughout all of history And says, at this moment, there will be payment for the sins that are not covered by Jesus. Because you don't have his righteousness. And because you are guilty. And here is the righteous and just punishment for your sin. This is justice. Now, if we want to play... The not fair game, there's a really not fair game for those who are Christians who've received Christ. Now, now I want to be very careful with this term because the term Christian has been used all throughout history to envelop lots and lots of people who really didn't know, love, and serve, and follow Jesus. So I'm talking about those who love, know, serve, and follow Jesus and express that service of Christ to humanity. That's who I'm talking about. So for those who have loved, served, to follow Jesus, you should be really, really excited because there's a lot of non-fares for you. You're given a crown of righteousness when what we deserved was the lake of fire. But the only reason that you're not there is because Jesus took the punishment of sins upon you. He was innocent. We are guilty. That's not fair. It's not fair that I'm rewarded. It's not fair that his grace covers my sin. It's not fair that his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness is now given to me so that God sees a holy and righteous person. It's not fair that he was innocent and suffered on behalf of those who are guilty. That's not fair, but that's why it's called the gospel, because it's good news to us. That's why when Jesus tries to put that crown on my head, I'm going to fall at his feet, and I'm going to beg to worship him for the next thousand years, because our Savior is that good, and God is just, because we as Christians are not treated the way our sins Deserve for us to be treated. If you want to make a case for not fair, the not fair part comes when you know, love, and serve Jesus. That's why. This is why I want to live a life. I want my life to be marked by something. I want to live such a life that I will be crowned and rewarded in heaven. And I think we should all want to live that life. Know, love, and serve Jesus. So help me today. I want to pray for you. Father, I pray today that your spirit would minister faith to your people, that we would live a life worthy of your rewards in heaven. And as you're praying, those of you who know, love, and serve Jesus, I want to talk to you for a moment. And I want to ask you a really, really serious question, but one that has very serious implications. And the question that I want to ask you is this. Do you truly want to live a life on earth worthy of the rewards in heaven? Now, I want to be careful here. What I'm not saying is I'm not saying that we're trying to win favor or God's approval because Jesus has already done that for us on the cross. But out of a response to everything that Jesus has done, we want to live a life not for our own pleasure but for his eternal glory. Those of you who are Christians... You say, yes, I really do. I want to give in his name. I want to serve in his name. I want to love in his name. I want to share the gospel in his name. I want to make a difference in his name. I want my life on earth to bring him glory in eternity. I want my life here to be worthy of the rewards of heaven. Would you lift your hands up right now? If that's you, if you're saying, hey, I'm I'm a believer and I want my life to count. God, thank you for those who desire to please you in all they do. And I pray, God, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to know the needs in front of us. And God, with the purest of Moses, that we would visit the sick, those in prison, clothe the naked and feed the hungry. And one day when we're in the kingdom of heaven, you'd say to us, you fed me, you visited me, you clothed me. And we wondered, when did we do this? And you'd tell us what you did to the least of these you did to me. And God, when you try to reward us, we will fall on our face and we'll put any crown back at your feet because you are the only one worthy of adoration and praise. God, help us to live a life on earth worthy of your rewards in heaven. As you keep praying today, there's some of you that internally there's a lot of spiritual discomfort. You hear this message and you're a little bit unsettled. Because you're wondering, man, if, if I am before God in the judgment of the great white throne, I realize my works aren't good enough. My sin disqualifies me from heaven. But here's the good news for you. The good news is that when God does punish sin, that is fair. But God doesn't always treat us as our sin deserves. If we call on the name of Jesus, who is without sin, the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world raised from the dead so that anyone who calls on his name will be saved forgiven and transformed when you turn from your sins and you turn towards Jesus no matter what you've done he'll forgive every sin he'll make you brand new and your name will be written in the book of life and it can never listen never be blotted out Many of you who are here today, you know that is true. For those of you who would say, "I need this," you'll say, "Today is the day of your salvation," is what I'd say to you. For those of you who would say, "Yes, today I trust Him. I give my life to Him. Jesus, take my life, save me, make me new." Everybody, would you just pray aloud with me? This prayer this is the prayer of salvation. Pray with me, Heavenly Father. Forgive me of my sins. Make me new. I believe Jesus died for me. And he rose again so I could live for you. Thank you for my life. Today I give you mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's worship.